Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. This week, the creative force that I'm talking to is Romaine Patterson. She is one half of the radio show Derek and Romaine. It used to be on Sirius XM, but then they broke out on their own. They're doing their own thing at DerekandRomaine.com. She's also the author of a book called The Whole World Was Watching, Living in the Light of Matthew Shepard. Uh, it came out a number of years ago, but I just read it, and it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. So I love talking to Romaine about all of that stuff. Before we get to the interview, I want to encourage you to go to DennisAnyone.net. There you can email me. You can see um, past podcast archives and pictures that go with the podcast. You can also buy some of my merch, like I have a couple of books out, a CD, things like that. It's all there. And you can also donate to my virtual tip jar if you want. It helps me keep the podcast free and pay for the expenses that come up, like web hosting. And if you like what you hear uh, and you're new to the podcast, I hope you subscribe. I hope you keep listening. Uh, I hope you like the Dennis Anyone Facebook page. All of that good stuff. It all makes a difference, and I appreciate it all so much. So here, without any further ado, is the delightful Romaine Patterson. All right, I'm here in the Anaheim Majestic Hotel. What is it? What? Where are we? We're at a Disneyland hotel. Well, we're slightly off property, but We're yes. slightly <laughs> off property with Romaine Patterson, one half of Derek and Romaine 2.0, radio host, author. I've just been reading your book, and it's so good. Thanks. It came out a few years ago. It did. It and, did. And it's called While... The, the, world, whole, the, whole, the world. whole world was watching. And it came out in what year? I think 2000 and... Like mid-2000s. 2005, yeah, 2006. Yeah, I think 2005. It's so good, and there's so many things I didn't know about you. First of all, we have one thing in common. What? High school speech team. Yes! I was more like humor drama. Okay. You were queen of the oratory. Well, I did... Uh, drama as well. Oh, okay. And I did oratory, but yeah. What was your drama cutting? Remember I, they always, they um, called them a cutting? I did a, I did, my favorite piece was a piece called, um, Aunt, 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 uh, Aunt Dan and Uncle Lemon or something like that. Or Aunt Lemon. And yeah, Aunt Lemon and Uncle yeah. Dan. I've heard of yeah, that. Yeah, and it sure. was amazing and I loved it and I yeah. used to kick ass with it and all the time. And you would win. Yeah. You would take it all the way to the top. But oratory would I, was where I, like, yeah. original oratory, you could not beat me. Yeah. Well, because you were probably one of those people at the end of the oratory and go, and that little girl was me. Like when it was a personal story, those people okay. always won. I did stuff like that. In my first year, I did a, it, my oratory was about uh, AIDS because I had a brother living with AIDS. And I, at one point I, I talked about how I had a brother essentially dying. And you dropped that later in the piece. Oh, oh now, yeah. Right? Totally. It was like, like build, build, yeah, build, yeah. and then boom. Bam. Yep. And then I did it's like that. first place, Romaine Patterson. I did Patterson. that. And then in my second year, I did, um, I can't remember what the piece was about, but all I know is at one point in time, I literally stopped talking and started sign language. That's and, amazing. Like completely put every, it was like, I was talking about people like disabilities and whatnot. And then I made the audience disabled because they didn't understand what I was talking about. And I was like, and this is how it feels. And let me tell you, bam, bam, dropping the always one. Right. Yeah. Do you still have any trophies from that? Oh yeah. Uh, I still have my mom. It's so exciting to win trophies. It was. Well, and I was the worst because, um, when I would win a trophy, I would get up on stage yeah. and I would raise my hand in the shape of an L so that everyone would know that they were losers. <laughs> You did that? That's crazy. Oh, that was mean. Well, it could be very, especially between other schools. It was very competitive. Oh, it was. And they were the drama kids and the nerds. Yep. And and, and and there was this one girl, Becca, and she and I were always like the top two 
cats, and I always loved taking her out. Like, if I could beat her, my life was good. Oh, and then speech, and they always had crushes on people from the other schools. Okay. Yes, I did. Yes. And here was the crazy thing. So I was the only like openly gay kid in any high school when I was in, in Wyoming. the entire West. Of yeah, the in, like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and so I was the only openly gay kid. But what was hysterical is all these other gay kids would come up to me because I was pretty well known, and they'd be like, "I'm gay too," and I'm like, "I know." There was this team in Cody, Wyoming, which is like just over the mountain range from where I grew up. They had, I think, 11 kids on their team, and six of them were gay. And one by one, they all came and told me, and I'm like, y'all need to start talking to each other, because yeah. you're all gay. You've got a gay-straight alliance. You can double, double oh, the yeah. And when I told them that, they were like, are you kidding? And then they all became, like, bestest friends. And you were the one that brought them together. I was, because I you, knew. You would go to tournaments in a little van, probably, or a bus. Teeny, How tiny you- bus yeah. in the worst snowstorms you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And because we lived in Wyoming, no meat was close. Like, the closest yeah, meat yeah. was, like, an hour and a half away. Did you ever go to nationals? Did you yes. ever go to See, I never got that big. I, I, I did. Think I went to state, but I never went to nationals. There were only two kids that ever have gone to nationals from my high school. Me and my older sister, Trish. What was your piece that got you to nationals? It was the AIDS piece that I did. Yeah, bam. Yeah. That one was so good. Oh, speech. Loved it. You know who's really into that, if you ever have him on your show? Michael Yuri. Really? Yeah, he was the king of it. I saw a documentary that he made about speech and drama tournaments. Uh-huh. I can't remember the name of it. It's really good, though. And he, that's his whole background. Oh my God, I love that. And he won the biggest thing. I want to be a speech coach. Like, I want to be a, I want to coach a team. My speech teacher was my most influential teacher. The one that made me, you know, I don't know, that just got me, that saw me the way that Mm -hmm. I was. And she told me once that I wasn't a stereotype. Interesting. And someday I would appreciate that. Hmm. I don't know, she made me feel special. It was all nice. So there, there's that speech and drama. All right, I loved it. So you're here at Disneyland. Yes. Favorite ride? Space Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Do they still have the surf music in Space Mountain? Because you know how they kind of change up the music sometimes. Well, right now, and usually this time of year, they do Ghost Galaxy, so yeah. it's like spooky, ghosty yeah. Not music. The same. Not the same. Yeah, but I do love Space Mountain. Space it's Mountain. Space thing. Mountain is my bitch. Yeah. At least I like to make her so, and I could ride that ride. A hundred times in a day and never have enough. It's the best. I love that ride. Now, you and Derek are Derek and Romaine 2.0. Yes. Your show got canceled by Sirius. Yeah. You said, we can do this on our own. Yes. And you're doing it. Yes. And it's working. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's taken a lot of work. Uh, you know, because... and But I'm lucky because Derek and I have... Very complementary skill sets. They're right. very different, but very complementary. And so between the two of us, we were able to figure out how to make it work. And, you know, I have a background in recording engineering. I had gone to school for it. So I understood a lot of the tech stuff, although, I mean, I went to school 15 years ago. So it's, <laughs> yeah, a, lot different it's now. a lot different now. But I knew enough to, like, be able to figure out what we needed to do, set up a studio, things like that. And, um, you know, the biggest question mark was, was the, was the audience going to be there? When, when did we started, you know that they would be there? When did it click? You know, I think it was the first day when our website crashed. <laughs> you were <laughs> you like know? Obamacare. I mean, yeah, it, that was really what it was like. Cause yeah. we, we, we were ready to start the show. We were really excited. We were really nervous. Uh, and I was most nervous because of the tech side of things. Cause I'd set up the studio, we had tested everything, but I still wasn't a hundred percent convinced that, 
you know, just the the audio stuff was going to work. And then it wasn't even the audio stuff at all that, that crapped out. It was the website. And then I was just relieved it wasn't my mistake. <laughs> I was like, so, oh, thank God. <laughs> a weekdays you're on the air two hours? Two hours a day. Five, five many, to seven p.m. Eastern. And what's the rest of your day like? Is it prep and... Oh, my God. Well, our lives are so busy because now that we work for ourselves, my mornings start out. And usually I spend my morning cleaning the house because my wife is a horrible cleaner. And so I clean the house, do my, do my life stuff for a couple hours. Then I usually go up to the studio, um, and I work in the studio and, and working in the studio can be anything from, uh, working on stuff for the Derek and Romaine cruises to editing stuff to, um, I just, you know, I make 10 minutes of music for, there's like a pre-show every day. Um, and then I usually now, cause we haven't, we have a new studio in the city. I now, um, get up at about one o'clock, get out of the office, get dressed, go to work in the city, get in the city. And then I have a bunch of stuff to do in the city. Like I prep all the show stuff. So that's where I do like the guest booking. And then I, um, do the show prep, which most days is like two sentences. I'm like, here you go, Derek. I hope this is enough information. Right. I'm horrible. You and, guys wing it. You can make it work. Yeah. And then, um, then we do the show and then after the show, um, I do all of the loading of the show into our various platforms. So oh. you can listen to it in your podcast apps and things like that. I, so I have to do a bunch of coding, which is completely new for me. That's a lot. It is. What's the thing that you do that Derek's likes so glad he doesn't have to do it? And what's the thing that he does that you're like, I couldn't do that in a million years? I'll start with him. The thing he does that I would never want to do is book the, the listeners on the cruises. Right. Like he does all the bookings because it's, very, it's like a travel agent. It is. It's a tedious job, and I suck at it. Like, I just suck at it. Right. So bad at it. And he's so good at it. Like, he yeah. just knows. The thing that I think he's glad that I do is I do, um, again, it's like the crew stuff. Not really the radio stuff, the crew stuff, though. I do all of the onboard, like, um, I'm like a cruise director. So I plan all of the onboard events and then I do all the grunt work that goes with it in terms of like packing everybody's welcome pack and getting their name tags ready. And it's a lot of grunt work, but I get it done. But it's office supplies, which is always fun. Yeah. Labels. Oh yes. So how many cruises do you do a year? Right now we're doing like two. Okay. And that's a a good part of your business as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, our business is, we're really running like three or four businesses all at once. It feels like. So we have the radio show, we have the cruises, which are huge. And then we're also like doing our own merchandise around the show because the fans really love it. And so we decided to do it. Good. So we're running a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. You're rocking a DNR 2.0 hat. And a shirt. I my favorite that. shirt, actually, my it's the our, head, our addicted headphones shirt. I love that. That's cute. I have a mic I, on my shirt, and you have headphones. I know, and I designed this shirt. That's this, really this headphone cool. logo. I love, I love it. it. Good yeah. for you. Thanks. It's now, been fun. In your book, you talk about being put together with Derek, and it's kind of like the blind date that worked. Yeah, it it's really like is. They kind of, you just kind of got put together, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Essentially, they said. We have this show with this guy who used to work at AOL. He, they didn't tell me hardly anything about him beforehand. Right. Like, it was literally a phone call where they told me, like, a couple little things. The only thing I really remembered, because I'm really forgetful, is that he worked at AOL. That's the only thing I knew. Right. And so, you know, I called him up, and I'm like, all right, let's go out for drinks. I suggested a place. We went out for drinks. And I didn't know what I was walking into. Who got more drunk? Uh, I don't know that either of us really got drunk. Okay. Um, but we, because we, we were too busy talking. Right. Because, I mean, when Derek and I get together, that's what we do. We just talk. And, 
Um, so I think there was more talking than drinking. But it, you just knew right away you clicked. We knew we were there for like four hours, and we wow. knew at the end of it's like, well, if we can sit here and talk to each other over drinks for this long, I think we can do a daily talk show together. What's something that sticks out to you about that first conversation? Uh, I I think it was the feeling when I left, where I was like, I felt like Derek and I had immediately had this like brother sister kind of connection right um and and relationship you can see how that would be kind of how things would shake out and i remember thinking oh he's he's actually a really fun guy he's really nice so i liked him a lot actually when i first met him so it was thumbs up it was i mean not always then there were some thumbs down but then there were some thumbs up again right (laughs) you know relationships they have ups and downs and everything in between now i think derek i remember derek telling me that you met your wife because of the radio show yeah she hated me and loved derek as and, a listener. Yeah, as a listener. She thought I was obnoxious, and she thought Derek was brilliant and funny. I mean, whatever. And so <laughs> so she had come to um, Charlotte, Char- Charlotte, North Carolina. She'd come to right. a pro- she was coming to a Pride event to help us. Because back in the day, we used to have, like, the booth set up, you know, at Pride events. Right. And But we would be on stage, and then we wouldn't have anyone in the booth, so we'd get volunteer listeners to, like, come and help us with the booth. Sure. And so she had volunteered to come and help us, but then she showed up literally as we were packing everything up for the day. Wow. And and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry I was late. Work kept me late, and I'm really sorry. And we're like, oh, well, hmm, okay. And we felt bad. It's like that dinner party where you carry one dish to the sink and rinse it out, and you don't really do it. Yeah, and we felt bad, and we're like, well, listen, we're going to go out to the club tonight, so if you want to join us, join us. And, of course, the club we were going to was like the Eagle So it was like half like country western eagle and then like half leather daddy eagle. And so we get there and it's her and I are the only women in the entire bar. Right. And she's like sitting at the bar playing one of those like little games on the uh, the bar. And I'm like, oh, this is sad. So I went over and I told Derek, I'm like, I'm going to go keep her company because, I mean, this is just sad. (laughs) So I went over. And we started talking, and we spent most of the evening talking. And I was in a relationship at the time, a relationship I could not wait to get out of, but in a relationship nonetheless. And um, so, yeah, we, we spent the whole night talking, and I really liked her. I was like, wow, she's a really, really cool cool girl. Was it super sexy when you first met? No. I mean, it was, it really, was, kinda, it was really kind of casual and, like, just really friendly. Because, you know, I try to be pretty friendly with, with the listeners. And then... I got back and she started emailing me and just like constantly emailing me, emailing, emailing me. I'm like, what? Why are you emailing me? And I'm like, ah. So then she came down like a month later, we were doing an event in Atlanta and she came to that event. And I literally, as I was walking out the door, was about to break up with my girlfriend because I'd had it with her. But I'm like, I can't break up with her because if I break up with her, while I'm gone, she's going to throw all my shit out. Like, I can't right. trust her enough to leave. Like, oh, yeah, I cannot do this. So I'm like, well, I'll break up with her when I get back. Right. So I went to Atlanta, and then Iris was there, and she was supposed to be there with a bunch of her friends, and they all bailed on her. Like, all of them. Wow. So she's there all alone, and I'm like, well, just spend the weekend hanging out with me. We get along. And then one thing led to another. And there you go. And there she does you go. something interesting for her job. I forget what. Well, she, she did. She did. Well, back then she was in the Air Force. Yes. Yeah. And she, um, and she was a, like, she was OSI, which is um, essentially like a federal agent for the Air Force. Which uniform was she hottest in? 
Well, she used to wear like um, power pantsuits and carry a concealed gun, which I always found sexy. <laughs> <laughs> power pantsuits. That's Hillary yeah. Clinton. Yeah, you pretty much. Yeah, but with a gun. God willing. God willing. <laughs> I love that. What's the most random thing that's come out of hosting the radio show for you? Like some listener took you somewhere random I or mean, just like... I never would have experienced that. There's so many that I don't even know that you can pick it, like, to say, oh, this is the most random yeah. thing. I mean, I've had so many great experiences because of the show, whether it's um, listeners. I mean, listeners send you some really random gifts sometimes. Right. And What's you're like, crazy stuff you got? oh, my God, I can't even. So many crazy things. We've got Sex toys, I'm sure. Uh, we have, I've definitely gotten some sex toys. I got a cattle prod once. Just as a Legit. Wyoming shout out? No, they thought I should use it on Derek. Right, that's pretty funny. <laughs> but it was like one of these big old yeah. mambo jumbo, like takes like nine D battery type <laughs> cattle prods that they wanted me to zap Derek with. That's really good. Yeah. Did you? Did no. You use it? Derek told me if I ever did, he'd kill me. Yeah, you could do it. That's so cool. <laughs> I wanted to though. Because I mean, <laughs> now I talked to Derek about this, so we don't need to go into it at length. But when when you found out the show was over at Sirius, yeah, was it just what was she, when they called you in there? Did you did you? Um, I mean, we we kind of knew something was up because of the fact they called a meeting at all. Because yeah. they, I mean, no one ever cared really. So it was like, oh my god, all of a sudden we have a meeting, something's up. Yeah. And I so on the way into work that day, I felt like I was walking the green mile. Like I was like literally, I'm like I'm walking the green mile right now. I feel yeah. it. Um, it was upsetting. I mean, because, you know, we'd worked there for over 12 years and we'd put a lot of energy and time into building the show there. And, and, you know, so it was really upsetting that it came to an end. But now that I'm out on the other side of it, I'm like, oh, thank God. In many ways, it's the greatest thing that ever happened for me personally. Cause I had gotten, I had gone to a very dark place in the last couple of years at Sirius. I was pretty miserable actually. And, um, and a lot of it was I just I, the disconnect between the company and the show just really just, bummed me out. You just felt like you were like playing just, out there on your own. Yeah, I just didn't feel like anyone cared, and right. so that was hard for me on an emotional level. Right. And so now it's like I'm a whole new person. I'm so happy. I'm like I didn't even realize how depressed I had gotten until I was out of the weeds, I'm and I was so like, happy wow, to hear that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and the show is so much better because of it. I mean, I'm much more engaged in the show, and and things are going a lot better because of it. So. Do you, did you carry out a box, like in the movies, a brown box, when you got fired? <laughs> well, so we asked him after they, they told us we were done. We are like, well, can we at least go pack our own desk? Because for me, the idea of someone packing my desk so gross. after 12 years is just creepy. I'm yeah. like, I don't want someone else packing my stuff. No, plus there's probably sex toys, let's face it. Oh, my it. God, there are so many. Yeah. So I'm like, can you know, can we do that? And they're like, okay, yeah, sure. Because, I mean, at that point, they were just being nice to us. And so Derek and I went, literally went back to our offices and packed our own boxes. And then we labeled them all up and put them on out in front and then they mailed them to us there you go how many boxes i had i think four all right manageable yeah not too four crazy giant ones um, <laughs> some stuff that i i loved about your book you talk about going to your first pride fest when you were a teenager and like, not being out yet but going no. with your your older brothers yeah because i have three older gay brothers was your mind blown it it was, but it was an interesting time too because it was right when um, Amendment uh, Two had been passed in Colorado. So everyone was really really angry. And you were in Colorado. And I we were in I was in Denver, and so it was like a really like it was like a protest pride. People were fired up. Yeah, it was crazy, and so there was all of that happening. And then of course for the first time I'm, I was really exposed to like gay people, even though I had older gay brothers. 
I didn't really know a lot about gay anything. And I, and I certainly didn't even know that gay, being gay was an option. Like, right. I had older gay brothers, but it never occurred to me that I could be gay. Right. <laughs> Until I was uh, at the end of the parade, and there was, like, this water fountain, and I saw these two women kissing in the center of it. And I looked at them, and I went, oh, holy, that's what I want to do! Yeah, <laughs> and I knew. Me. And it was a light bulb moment for me, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm gay. And, then, and from that point, I never looked back. When I was reading that, I wondered if your brothers had a sense about you. Oh yeah, totally. And yeah. so they they knew they knew that you were they were taking they were sending a message that it was okay. Yeah, I mean they really were. I mean my brothers, my older brothers were always. I mean they've always been really amazing in that way. Um, but yeah, I mean I was such a tomboy growing up. Yeah. There was no question I was a big dyke. <laughs> when was the last time you wore a dress? Uh, you write about it in the book how much you hated. Dresses I hate dresses. I hate them to this day. The last time I wore one, uh, I think, was when I married my niece. I wore one to her wedding. Right. You married, you were the officiant? I was the officiant. Nice. And I, and it was in the middle of this like horse pasture in Wyoming. Right. And so I wore a dress and muck boots. There you go. You had to, <laughs> you had to fuck it up somehow. Of you had to ruin the pictures. And no, and it was a great dress. It was yeah. a really great dress, but of course I wore muck boots. I had this friend who was getting married and her husband's to be's sister was a San Francisco lesbian. Okay. And very San Francisco lesbian. Right. And they were trying to get her to shave her pits for the pictures. Oh, and it was such a thing of like, I don't even know how to, I don't even, I can't even give you any, you know, um, <laughs> input on this because I, I can see both sides of it. That's sure. That's thing. But yeah. you, wore, you wore your boots, you made it work. I did. And I shaved my legs. Yeah. <laughs> Barbie dolls. You weren't into them. I hated them. And you would torture them. I would. I would tear off their heads. I would shoot them with my BB gun. I did a lot of mean things to Barbie dolls. Would your mom go, why, why are you ruining your Barbies? Yeah, pretty much. But I was more interested in, like, G.I. Joe. And yeah. The, the, I wanted to be like the boys. They yeah. had the better toys, in my opinion. Yeah. So, well, of course, I, was, I didn't care about that girly crap. And my mom would get these, she would have these beautiful, like, beautiful I think back on it now they were really stunning like Barbie doll dresses and stuff she'd have like her little lady friends make them for me and I would just I just could care less yeah you just didn't care you wiped your ass on those Barbie pretty, clothes pretty much um, I was a horrible daughter <laughs> I was so impressed with how self-possessed you were as a kid like you you wrote a letter to your older brother Michael saying you wanted to get to know him better yeah what a I mean, I think there's so many families where, like, I think about my family that way. Like, I didn't know them. Yeah. But I don't know if I would have had the, the well, courage was... to write and say it so clearly. I don't know you very well. I'd like to get to know you better. Well, because, I mean, well, we found out he was dying. And, or you know, and back then, I mean, people really did die when you found out they had, you know, you were HIV positive. Or in his case, had AIDS. And, um, you know, I, I and he was much older than me. I mean, he was, I mean, probably... 18 years, 17 years older than I was. So I really didn't ever get a chance to know him. I didn't grow up in the same house as him because he was long gone by the time I came around. Um, Actually, he graduated the year after I was born. He graduated from high school. And so, and everyone said such great things about him. Like he was like the one everyone in the family looked up to. So I was like, well, how is it that I don't know this person? And he's going to die and I'm never even going to know my sibling. And so that really bothered me. And um, so yeah, I did. And it was, and I remember I was so scared leaving the letter for him cause I didn't know what he'd say. I didn't know how he'd react. thing to say, but I understand that. Yeah. People, like this isn't how our family works or I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So I literally, we, we'd gone to visit him and, um, as we often did at that point. 
and um, I just left this note in his room after I after we left, and he called me. And I think the same day, actually, I think later that day, he called me and he said, "You know, if you want to get to know me, why don't you come spend the summer with me? We'll talk to mom and dad, and we'll make it happen." That was at the end of one of the chapters, and I read that, and I, my heart soared. Yeah, I thought, what a wonderful thing. And you know, and the funny thing is, is that he and I had so much in common. Like we were so similar. In what in, ways? Just our interests. We were both, you know, he was a speech nerd too, and he helped me a lot with um, becoming better at it. I mean, he really gave me great advice. But, like, same musical interests and theatrical interests. Um, he, you know, sense of humor. There was just a lot we had in common. Um, and it was interesting because, in many ways, I think of my life as an adult as a reflection of him because. He was in his. He was little, little, um, little younger than I am now when he died, and he he was self aware enough to know that his life was coming to an end, and yet he wanted to pass on everything he had learned in life, and so he kind of took me as like a student and just filled me with all of this really adult knowledge when I was still just a teenager. And, um, about life, relationships? About a lot of things, but primarily about... He, he gave me a lot of self-confidence, and he never treated me like a kid. He always treated me like a, an equal. And, you know, he, he would tell me, he's like, listen, don't listen to mom and dad if they tell you you can't do something, you can't. He always encouraged me to break out of my own shell and to try new things and to speak up, um, you know, and he, he encouraged a lot of my early activism, um, and he just, he was just a really, he was just a really smart guy. Whenever I needed advice, I always called him and he always had the best advice. Do you still have the leather jacket? Cause you inherited his leather jacket. I do. I, I will be buried with that jacket. <laughs> I love that jacket. <laughs> that jacket, that jacket saw me through a lot of tough times and some really good times. <laughs> well, just reading your book, you, you went through a lot when you were young. I yeah. Mean, your brother, Matthew Shepard, your father. Yep. And then, was there a time in your adult life where you had a nice run of years where, oh, wow, things didn't go that, you know what I mean? Like, did you feel like you ever kind of, uh, did, um, did you appreciate the times in your life that... That, that, that wasn't crazy and drama-filled? Yes. yes. But it didn't happen for me until, really until I was about 30. Like, yeah. yeah, I would say right before I turned 30, like 29 to like 30... 35 were pretty solid years. I mean, I met Iris. I was finally in a relationship where my partner actually cared about me in the same way that I cared about them. Um, you know, and I felt like I was finally getting treated like an adult by my own family because I had a child and that like changed everything. Right. Um, That's interesting. You know, I had a great job that I really, really loved when I was, you know, because we were still pretty early and serious. So I think those were like so far in my life. Those have been some pretty great years. Yeah. Then we hit some rough patches uh, with my mom uh, getting sick and passing away, and that was tough. And now with the new DNR 2.0, I have very high hopes for where things are going. I, I feel like this is going to be a really good stretch of time. Yeah, you're running the show. Yeah, and it's that. fun. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. What, did you? I've been doing some reading recently about PTSD and how trauma comes back later. I uh-huh. you must have experienced some of that. I in did. In your 20s and uh, and beyond. Actually, the hardest the hardest part for me was um so ma- after Matthew died, there was like a good stretch of like 2 or 3 years where I was really really deeply involved in activism. I went to work for Glad. I was in DC and 
So, and there were some really traumatic things that happened during that time that I can look at now and realize, whoa, that was some really messed up stuff. Like when I worked at GLAD, they would send me to other towns where, you know, hate crimes had happened. And my job was to go and help the people like that were like the me's of that situation, um, talk to the press and having been, having gone through the gauntlet of the media, I knew how horrible it was and how, you know, all the media wanted you to do was cry on camera and be like the grieving friend. Yeah, they call it tears on tape. Yeah. And it was horrible. And, and, and yet glad wanted me to like teach these people how to do tears on tape. And it's like, I don't want to do that. It's horrible. I don't want them. I don't, I, I'm going to tell them to run and hide and not talk to the media at all. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it was really challenging. When I left GLAD, I went back to school. And uh, during that time, I had this girlfriend I was madly in love with. And she left me. She was up and literally one day was like, okay, I'm leaving. And it triggered what, I mean, was really emotion like a complete emotional breakdown all the stuff from all everything of, all um, of the loss issues from my father to matthew to my brother michael it all just like it like just caved in on me and what i realize now is that for all of those years after matthew's death i'd never grieved him like i never actually there was no time for grief because you had to compartmentalize all your feelings just to get through the day when you had so much "Quote unquote work to do." Oh yeah, to lots of be work. on camera and to do all these interviews well, and to and you knew your time was limited. Like, I mean, in many ways, I had enough foresight to know that there was this very limited window where we could, those of us who were talking to the media and, and trying to you know do things, where we could actually influence how people look at these crimes, look at what happened to him, and learn from it. And so when you, you could ha- frame the. Yeah, and it's like, you have this limited amount of time, you cannot waste a single opportunity. So you couldn't say no. Like, if someone wanted to do an interview with you, you automatically said yes, because you didn't want to miss an opportunity to make sure that this didn't happen to somebody else. Right. And it was a tremendous amount. Well, and it was just a tremendous responsibility for someone who was 21. What did you learn about the media doing all of those interviews? I learned that the media could be incredibly useful if you know how to manipulate it to your advantage, but it could also be incredibly destructive and the media will chew you up hard. If you're not, if you're not capable of, of kind of framing the discussion for yourself. Did any of those reporters that you remember from back then, like blow up and become like big cable news people or no, I mean, not a lot of them. I mean, there were, there were some that, I mean, I've gone on from like, smaller, smaller, uh, newspapers to bigger newspapers, but nothing like super, super major. But, um, yeah, there were certainly certain ones that stood out for me over the years. And then there were some that I wish I could find today because they were, there were some that were just so great that I just would want to be like, you know what? You really stood out as an exceptional journalist. You were fair. Yeah. Because there were not many, there were not many that were fair or nice. Yeah. That's so much. I was reading that in the book and I just like, all of the different outlets and oh, God. all of the thing. And you got photographed by David LaChapelle. I did. That What's was a crazy... Story? That was a that cra- happened? <laughs> so I was working at GLAAD, and I can't remember... There had been a hate crime, and someone had used the idea, in, in like had done angel action in their town. And, and so, you were the first to do it. And I you was, invented it. Yeah, and I invented it. And um, so... 
the New York Times wanted to do this piece around the holidays, like around Christmas time. And um, so they contacted Glad, and they're like, hey, can you help us find the person who did this angel thing? Well, I was working with Kathy Wren at the time, and Kathy goes, well, actually, if you want to talk to someone, the, the girl who came up with this, you know, angel idea uh, literally sits at the desk next to me. So they got me on the phone with them, and uh, they're like, listen, we'd like you to come to New York and be, you know, have your photograph taken. And I'm like, okay. Knew nothing about who David LaChapelle was, because, you know, I'm just a girl from Wyoming. Right. And I was like, eh, this will be interesting. So I get, in a, I, get, I get on the train, I go up to New York. They pick me up in a car service, and they drive me to his studio. And the, the car pulls up to his studio, and it's, like, in this, like, weird little road. New York, very New York City. And, like, there's a door. It's covered in graffiti. It looks like there's been a bum sleeping out front. And they're like, okay, you're going in there. And I'm, I looked at the driver, and I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what is behind that door, but it cannot be good. Right. And so... They called the guy, he went over and he called the guys down from the studio. And someone came down, they were like, oh, come on, it's okay, I promise, it just looks scary. And I'm like, okay. Walk up a set of stairs into the most gorgeous loft you've ever seen. Like, just this stunning loft where David had his studio. And, um, and then eventually we got, in a, we got in a van and drove out to some crazy part of Brooklyn to do the actual photo shoot. And it was just like one of those just like really cool days. And I didn't know anything about him until I got to the studio. Then all of a sudden I'm looking around and there's all these photographs of things I've seen from album covers to magazine covers to ads. And it's like, oh my God, this guy has taken all of these photos. I'm like, he's kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. So <laughs> the Angel's outfit that you were wearing wasn't one of the original ones. It was... Actually, um, they had asked me, I think, I can't remember if I sent them one or if I gave them the directions and they made one. I feel like I feel like I, I gave, sent them the directions and they made one. They made one to the directions because yeah, I have the directions on my website because lots of people like to take the angels and use them as like counter protests in their towns. So, it like, started a whole thing. Where are some of the the places that they popped up since? You uh, well, there's a big there's a big group that uses the angels in um, in Atlanta. Like a lot, there's a big group of them down there that use it for various things. And then most recently, what people will remember is in Orlando with the shooting at the Pulse shooting. Um, Fred Phelps and a bunch of those, like the Westboro Baptist Church, Fred's dead now, but the Westboro Baptist Church wanted to come down and protest, and so they had a big group, a theater group, that put together angel action down there as well. So the Phelps, the the, the Phelps family is carrying on the awful tradition. Of course. What uh, was it like when you heard that Fred Phelps died? Um, it really, I really didn't think much of it because yeah. I, I just, I really never gave him much thought because I mean he's just a jerk so um yeah it didn't bother me did you ever have a a verbal exchange with him or an eye contact moment with him Um, (laughs) did you ever have a one on one moment well I would say the probably closest to one on one moment that he and I had was when I when we started working at Sirius uh, John McMullen had Fred up to Sirius as a guest. Holy shit. And so I walked through the lobby, and I can't remember if it was John or if it was the producer of his show at the time, introduced us. And, and it's like, oh, here's the... And, and so, of course, he's like, you know, shake his hand. And I'm like, I don't want to shake this asshole's hand. <laughs> I did, but I was like, ugh. And I mean, I was just like, I don't like this guy at all. And that guy did not like me. Did he recognize you? you oh, yeah. He, he, he recognized me. Oh, yeah, without question. Wow. Yeah. That's so weird. It your was workplace. weird. You yeah. walk in and you're like, guess who's here? Yeah, great. Well, That's nice. I, I, I sort of didn't quite explain that. Um, 
what during one the first trial for uh, yeah. Matthew Shepard's yeah it was Russell Henderson's trial murders the the Phelps family came up and did their God hates fags yep. thing and as a way of sort of masking them from the the Shepherd parents and and everyone yeah you guys wore these amazing angels yeah uh, they, and walked and they walked were these in between. big they were these big bedsheet wings <laughs> and then in the outfit and they were they they had they were on top of these PVC pipes that kind of looked like a pterodactyl skeleton yeah. and um, yeah we the whole idea was to silently block the the protesters the yeah. the, the bad guys but at the same time allow because they used to have these like big neon signs and they would hold them up but allow that like we wanted to have that visual of like the angels and then those horrible signs behind us because we wanted people to see very visually the difference between good people and bad people right. love and hate right and because I think people really needed. Sometimes you just need that black and white. There it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a easy strong image for a it. Really, yeah, and and so that's what that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to block them out with our wings. And I mean, at the time, I didn't realize. I knew it was going to be. I knew it was going to be important what we were doing. I had no idea it would become what it became. Yeah, this thing now where people do it all over the place. Well, and it was the first time... So Fred had been... Fred Phelps had been protesting at the funerals of people who died of AIDS and gay men for, for God, like 10 years before that. And no one had ever stopped him. Or figured out a way or to Or figured out him. a way to, like, counter-protest undermine him or him. undermine him. Like, no one had figured that out. And so we were the first ones to really figure that out. Like, yeah. just to show the difference. And then, because of that, other people in other communities were inspired, and so they started doing all these other different kind of cool and fun counter-protests to different protesters like that, and it completely changed the game. Yeah. Like, and I mean, completely changed how towns reacted to people like that coming in with their crazy hate speech and things like that. And, I mean, for the better, so... It's an incredible legacy. Incredible I mean, it, listen. If it's the only if it's the only good thing I've accomplished in my life, it's a pretty damn it's a pretty great good one. Thing. Did you pay retail for the sheets? I did. <laughs> yes. All right. I thought I thought maybe somebody cut you a no, deal. No. And I bought uh, the day that we made the first angels. I went to every store, every Target, every Kmart, every Walmart, every store I could to buy all the white sheets, and I bought them all. Wow. Yeah. It was crazy. So I went and saw the film Matthew Shepard is a Friend of Mine not yes. long ago. Yep. It would have been probably in the summer or in the spring here in L.A. Mm-hmm. It was so good. Yeah, it is. It's great. And you're, you're featured in it. I am. And I learned so much about him that I didn't know. He had a, he had a very, he had a lot of drama in his life. He did. He and, did. And um, what, what I wanted to share with you is when I was going into the movie, there was another guy that I knew at the Arclight. And he was on a date with a guy. And his date was from Wyoming. And his father, he said that his father built the fence. Oh, that's crazy. And he said that his father kind of bragged about it afterwards. Like, Ew. And, and that he's now estranged from his father and got kicked out for being gay. And I mm. thought, even just at the, at a, in a lobby at the Arclight, right. I met somebody connected to that story in a way that's heartbreaking. Right. But he was on a date with a Hawkeye, and they were making oh, out, well. so it all worked out. <laughs> but, yeah. Do you ever think, would you be where you are now if that didn't happen? Do you think it set a trajectory for you? I think or it, do you think you would have... I think it sped it up, but I definitely think I would have ended up 
were doing, doing something, this, something doing the similar. Kind of thing that you're doing. I always used to say in high school I was going to be famous. Right. In fact, I, one of my best friends signed signed my year signed my yearbook, and she's like, "Don't forget me when you're famous," because I really, I mean, with every fiber of my being, I knew that I would find fame in some way in my lifetime. I thought I was going to be a rock star, right? Because uh, I love to sing, but. Um, yeah, I mean, life life really it took a pretty serious detour there for a while, and uh, I had to kind of get myself back on track. But Was there a point where you were like, I'm, I'm tired of being defined by that? Oh, yeah. And how do you break away from that? I wrote the book. The book was... The book was your way of saying... The book was my way of saying, here it is. This yeah. is... I've, I've done all this stuff for all this time, and by that point it was like seven years. I've done all this work for all these years... I have to, I have to allow myself to move on beyond this. I, this will always, like, Matthew's story and Matthew's legacy will always be some, like, something I take very seriously. It will always be something I will try to utilize to create change in the world. But at some point, like, I had to be Romaine. Like, Romaine, not friend of Matthew Shepard's. I just had to be myself. Right. And so, for me, it was, it was kind of two things. It was writing the book. So that I could really say, this is everything I have to say about that. Right. And then the other part was the radio show, because the radio show was so different from the person, the, this person that I had created for the media to, to share Matthew's story. Uh, the radio show was like dirty, raunchy. I was like, I went from being like a beautiful angel to a fallen angel. <laughs> <laughs> How did people react to that? Were there people some that were pe- like, "You're not supposed to be that. You're the voice of the community. You're our." Some people were upset. Model. Some people were upset by that, um, you know. But I was like, "Listen, I, I just, I have to be who I am, and I can't, I can't let this just define me for the rest of my life." And, and I, it would have made me miserable, and I would have hated it, and eventually I would have grown to resent it. So, I mean, I'd already kind of started to. So I was like, "I gotta, I gotta move on from this and have fun." And and the radio show for me was like that perfect outlet to be crazy and wild and all the things I wanted to be that I hadn't been able to be in my early well, 20s. Well, because you had to be, everyone's eyes were on you. You yeah. had to, and you had a responsibility. The whole world was watching. The whole world was watching, <laughs> available. It's such a good book. It's so beautifully written. Thanks. Um, I, I, I love it. I think it's so good. Yeah, I worked with a great guy on that book, yeah. uh, Patrick Hines, and we spent a lot of time getting it right. When you when you said that people were a little shocked by you, how did they how did they express that? Would you get letters, or was there people calling into the show, or how did you know the, that? Like people who had known like the activist side of me, yeah. they, you know, they'd be like, "Oh, I listened to your show," and they'd give you like this kind of side eye, like, "Yeah, huh, this is different." Right. <laughs> and I'd be like, "Yeah, it is, yeah. and I love it." So there. You go. So there. Mm. What was the best part of working at Glad? Um. God, I, you know what? Actually, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, getting to go to the VMAs one year, because we were we were protesting out front uh, because the Glad didn't like the Marshall Mathers LP that uh, Eminem had done, and because um, it had a whole bunch of anti-gay language in it. Right. And so we had decided to protest at the VMAs, and I was the spokesperson because I was the youngest person on staff. You were the hippest, I guess. And so, the MTV generation. And so they, they made me go, we got to go to the VMAs and protest out front, and then I got to go into the theater, because they wanted, MTV wanted to interview us, and uh, so I, I was like the spokesperson uh, that day, and that was fun. That was, just because just it was just kind of different and fun, I didn't yeah. thought, you know, I'd go to the Did VMAs. Did you see the stars and stuff? Oh yeah, we saw it all. I mean, we yeah. saw everything. It was, it was kind of wild. As a, as a creative person, I think Glad does 
good work, but I'm glad I'm not doing it because I yeah. understand an artist need to express themselves, and sometimes that thing that's offensive is so true yep. that it I feel like it needs to be. It has a right to be. I, I don't. I, I wouldn't get at that job. I, well, with that, with with the Eminem stuff in particular, I struggled with it because I believe in artistic expression, and but I also believe you know we have certain responsibilities and we should take responsibilities for our words and our actions. But um, yeah, there were some there were some things I didn't always agree one hundred percent with. Right, but it's a, probably a great training ground for the for the nonprofit world. Oh yeah, or, yeah, media world and all of that stuff. Yeah, um, you did this MTV show. Where you like kind of punked somebody, kind of, or oh yeah, you read about it in your book, and I don't remember that show, but it was like it was called Flipped. It was called Flipped, but you create this scenario around somebody that's meant to sort of expose their natural prejudices or whatever, yep. and then you sort of flip it, and but you flip had to sort of act and, and oh carry and you off know what was crazy a, carry off a it's a kind of a it's like a prank about you know so here so here's morality. the scenario so I get to L A. I wasn't living in L.A. at the time. I don't remember where I was living. I get to L.A. and I spend the night in a hotel. And the room above me, there are these two kids, these two young men. And they're like screaming out their window all night long. Fucking faggots. I hate you. Fuck you. Blah, blah. And they're like crazy people. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. And I was actually like in my hotel room being like, holy shit. I don't know who that is above me, but they're kind of scary. Next morning, I find out it's this kid that I'm about to punk. So... Oh, so you're like, okay, bring it. Oh, I can't wait. So, and the thing was, the producers of the show were not great producers. Like, they had set up all these scenarios to, like, screw with this kid. And it's not just one beat. It's like, oh, this happens, and then this happens, and we go to commercial, and then you have to sell this moment. Yeah. And so they had all these things, but, like, they didn't really, they didn't really give me any information on how to convince this kid. I was like on his side. So I, my job was to pretend like I was an MTV producer and I was taking him to all these things and we were filming him for the show. And, um, you know, and he thought he was going to be like a little MTV VJ essentially. But in the meantime, me and time, we're, we're, we take him to this super, super gay hairdresser to get his hair done. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, we take him to a recording studio where there's a gay, this like gay punk rock band performing. Uh, and then. And just watch what he says and how he is. Right. And we're doing all these things, you know, and he's, you know, kind of, and he's reacting very honestly and not very friendly to the gay peeps. And then. We roll up on a, like, essentially a crime scene. Yes, you, like, stage a hate crime in yeah, front of him. where we stage this hate crime where the hairdresser who had done his hair earlier in the day was bloodied and being taken away in an ambulance. And he completely loses his mind. We took him to, um, we all, he also went to a meeting with, uh, like, a gay group, like, young gay kids that were having, like, a group meeting. And the producers didn't really know what they wanted to do. So I, so I went into the kids and I said... When this kid comes in, I'm like, I want you to talk about being bullied in school. And and then I want you to turn to, turn to him and say, have you ever bullied anyone? And see what he says. And so I, like, I'd made the kids put him on the hot seat. So I actually got some really good content for those producers. I know, you were doing their job. For I was. And then it at was the fun. end, they're like, guess what? It's all, you're not going to be a VJ. We're exposed right. to, you know. So then we end up in the police station where, you know, and, and, and I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm not really a producer for MTV. This was my friend Matthew, and he died because of people <laughs> like you. And this kid, like, like, he didn't know what had hit him. And, but he signed the release. Oh, he did. And, and you know, it was interesting because the producers got a hold of me weeks after the fact, and they're like, 
this really changed this kid's life. They're like, he's stayed in contact with us. And like he had, a, he, when he got home, he sat down and talked to his dad. Cause evidently a lot of his anti-gay feelings came from his father. Yeah. And he sat down with his dad and told him all about his day and like had like a real heart to heart with his dad about how his dad needed to change his opinion. Yeah. Wow. So it was, it was pretty powerful That's stuff. Just, oh, but I would not have had the, I'm not good at hidden camera things or phony phone calls like I get really uncomfortable I would it, not have been able to it was, one, it was one of those it was one of those like at moments of activism that was really emotionally draining by the end of that weekend I was wiped out well because you're trying to figure out if is it you know the end message is positive but is it right to be doing this oh yeah, yeah there was a lot going on that weekend yeah I could see that I could see that I had another question that flew out of my mind um, let's look at some of the uh, observation deck oh, questions God. that you picked. Okay. All right. What was your favorite or most memorable birthday? Uh, when I, I turned 19, Matthew actually threw my birthday party, and it was wild. It was a drunken brouhaha. Yeah, what was it? Was there a theme? Uh, I was the queen bee, and everyone more or less had to bow down. And what, was it in his <laughs> apartment? Something's never changed. Yes. It was at his apartment. But I remember when I when I showed up, his mom and him lived in, like, apartments in the same complex, but, yeah. like, two doors down. And I went to her apartment thinking it was his. And so that's the first time I met Judy Shepard. You write about that in the book. Yeah. I knock on the door, and she's like, hello? And I'm like, oh, you're not Matthew. I love the way your re- relationship with her evolved in the book. Yeah. And how, where it came to this really lovely mutual respect place. I thought it was great. Tell us about the first time you saw a dirty magazine. Well, I, my sister, God, it's so great. My sister, Trish used to have a subscription to Playboy. Why my sister did, I don't know. I guess she liked the articles and I used to steal them and I would sell them to all the neighborhood boys. You had your own racket. I did. I would. Or How much I, for a Playboy? Well, usually I would trade him a, like a really good baseball card. Okay. So, more I, of a barter. Type. Yeah, it was more of a barter. But then I would take the the baseball cards and sell them at the store or whatever. But oh yeah, I had quite a racket until well, I got caught. As a budding lesbian, did you like looking at them? Um, or were they like the kind of? Play I didn't really care yeah. so much, actually. <laughs> Have you ever been starstruck? Yes, uh, only once that I can really think of, and that was um, right after Matthew had died. Uh, that April, I went to I was flown to the Glad Awards in Los Angeles. And I was backstage, and we were doing, like, red carpet stuff, and I was standing there, and Whoopi Goldberg was right in front of me, and I'd met all these other celebrities that night, too. It was, like, the first time I'd ever really met, like, a lot of celebrities, and she turns around, and she goes, hi, and I'm like, you're Whoopi Goldberg, and then I couldn't talk. That was it. That was all I could say was, you're Whoopi Goldberg, and then I could not say another word. I loved it. I was like, you're Whoopi Goldberg. If there was a doll of you that talked, what would it say when you pulled the string? Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> probably. Just probably a bunch of different thoughts. I mean, it would probably be a lot of really naughty things. It would probably be, you know, inappropriate, yeah. really inappropriate things. Describe your most unfortunate haircut. Uh, I had a crush on a girl, and I and she liked to cut hair, so I said, well, I'll let you cut my hair, thinking I might get laid. And she cut my hair so short and so crazy I could not. I was like, "Yep, I can't sleep with you now because you mutilated my you mutilated my head." Oh man! And all I wanted to do was fuck you. And now look at me. Now you have to see. <laughs> that is a get. true story. <laughs> have you, did you before you met your wife? Did you hook up with many listeners? Uh, was, that, was that a good place to find people? Uh, one listener, 
I think, is all. All right. Yeah, not a lot of listeners. Not a lot of listeners. No. I mean, I've had many opportunities since. I just yeah. have not done it, unfortunately. Exactly. <laughs> Where's the strangest place you've ever been recognized? I think the saddest place <laughs> was after after our show was canceled. Uh, in the town I live in, there's a mall, and I was wandering through the mall, and I was... I was, I looked horrible. <laughs> I was just like, I was sad and mopey and I like didn't even brush my hair. Like I just looked like crap. Unlocked. Yeah. And I'm walking around the mall and this guy goes, Romaine, he's sitting in the chair. He's like, Romaine. I'm like, yes. And he goes, oh my God, I'm such a big fan of your show. Well, I was a big fan of your oh, show. God. And I was like, let hey. me buy you an orange Julius. Like, thanks. And he goes, so is this what you do now? Just wander around aimlessly in the mall. <laughs> And I was like, I hate you. <laughs> but yes, this is what I do now. <laughs> it I was bad. That. What's your favorite waste of time? Uh, I have many, but I'd have to say shopping on eBay. <laughs> I what love, do you shop for? Oh my God, everything, anything, all kinds of things. But you know what, though? The thing is, like, someday when you're having, a, like, an okay day, not a great day, and you go to the mailbox and there's something you ordered. Oh, it's the greatest. It makes you feel good. It does. It's like, oh, oh yeah. it's that thing that I thought was going to be like this, and what's it like, and if it's yeah. a gadget or something, it, it makes you feel I good. I love it. And this, in the last few months, because we were building the, the New York City studio for Derek and Romaine, um, and I had all this stuff shipped to my house, and I was I have to say, it was so fun spending all that money. I was like, woo, let me spend some money on this, and then, oh, packages arrived. I loved it. Awesome. I was like, this is the best retail therapy ever, because it's not my money. <laughs> I mean, it was, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was the businesses. Yes. What was your lowest point professionally? Uh, I would have to say, well, there were there's two that come to mind. Uh, obviously, losing our job at Sirius XM after 12 and a half years was pretty devastating. But I think the lowest point for me probably was when I worked at GLAAD. And I found out that they had been writing all these grants. And they had been including, like, achievements I had had. Not just at GLAAD, but, like, all these achievements I had had. And they were using my relationship with Matthew to get grants and that really bothered me a lot you were because they, they didn't even tell me they were doing it it sounded like they really were like oh she's good on the computer but she know you know like she was it sounded like a bit like that's what it was about for them it for the reason they hired me and and i know this because one of my old bosses from there told me uh it was, was essentially i was a show pony they could trot me out when they wanted to like get some press about Matthew or things like that or and, and that's how they used me. And which I was thought you know, I mean, granted I did a lot of good work while I was there. It wasn't like I was just that. But Yeah, you learned Microsoft Office. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I helped with like the Doctor Laura campaign and things like that. But it really was more about they they could use me as a reason to get more grant money and that really bothered me a lot. Does it when you hear something about them now? Does it does it color that the fact that you um, work there, or is it like you just take every issue as its own thing? No, and the thing is, I mean, as much as it bothered me, and I can look at it now and understand the reason that they did it. I mean, and it was an opportunity for you too. In a way. Yeah, I mean, and listen, I you know I don't regret going to work there. I certainly, I mean, I was more hurt that they. I would have felt a lot better if they had told me that they were doing it. If they had said, "Hey, listen." By telling your story, we have the opportunity to raise some more money for the for the, for the organization, and we can use it to do ABC. I think if they had yeah. come to me and said that, I'd been like, "Oh yeah, no, totally." Yeah. But the fact that they kind of did it in this super shady way is what really was like. That's just that doesn't yeah. make me feel good. They should good. have said, "Look, your position 
can help us in some ways. If right. If you're ever uncomfortable with any of that, just say so and we'll come to right. you. Yeah, they should have been yeah, in front of that. But they weren't. Um, what's the most crazy thing you've done in pursuit of a crush? I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, around. I've done a lot of crazy things. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Oh, gosh. I've done so many crazy things in pursuit of crushes. Um, I literally became this girl's best friend because I had a crush on her. Do you write about her in the book? I do. I think there's a cute picture of you yeah. with a Dalmatian. Yeah, there is. My first girlfriend, Suzanne. I literally made her my best friend. Like I, I became her best friend just so I could... Eventually, get in bed with her. When you and it worked. <laughs> when you reveal to her, this this will tell you where I am in my life. When you reveal to her that you had a crush on her, uh huh. Her next line was something like, oh, "Maybe I do too," or like, uh, maybe I have a crush. "Oh yeah." She it was something. It was essentially like that too. She's like, "Yeah, I think I you know maybe had maybe I do too," and I'm like, so, what? It was some, The wording of it was something where I thought she was shutting you down. And then I and then I kept reading. I'm like, oh no, it's on, it's on, oh it's on. <laughs> but that line, there's something about that language of that line where I'm like, oh, she's she's just wants to play right. the friend zone. And I think it's just my projection of how life is. No, so I was happy with the twist. Yeah, and it was on because I literally because I was so shocked by it in the moment. I was like, what? And I was like, oh, because she got up and walked away. Like she dropped this line and then literally got up and walked away. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm following her. All through high school, it seemed like you came out and told people right away. You had the freedom rings. Yeah, you were like, and you did, you weren't you weren't going to be afraid. You were just going to. be I was like, too naive. I, I it was really it naive. Well, I mean a little bit, but I didn't know any better. I mean, right. I think I think if I if my brothers had properly warned me that life would suck as much as it did, I probably would have waited until I probably would have waited a little bit longer. Well, because in the book, it's like. I'm here, I'm proud, and that's it. And then it's like, oh, shit, this is lonely. Yes. That, and that's... <laughs> oh, this is awful. I <laughs> it's like, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Were you raised religious? Uh, my mom was very Catholic. I, I had to go to, like, CCD and all that crap. And then when I... And I went through it all through high school. And then when I was old enough to be confirmed, I disappointed my mom by telling her I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to get confirmed, and she was really upset. But was did you ever get guilt about... Uh, being gay, like religious guilt? No, Betty was never really like that. Um, she put more of that guilt on herself. Like, she blamed herself a lot. Yeah. Oh, I got all these gay kids. It must be something I did. She had four, right? She had four. And, you know, and the funny thing is, that, and because I had, like, I, I mean, I do. I have, like, the most amazing family thing because my mother and father married when they were virgins. They were married until the fa- day my father died. They were the epitome of... Two people who absolutely loved one another and raised a large family together, even though they didn't have a lot. And they just like they were they were incredible. And I can look at it now and be like, I don't know how they did it because they were incredible. Is it a model for you about marriage relationships? You know, it sets it set all of us up for failure, actually, because they made it look so easy and so just seamless. And like my parents just they just made it look like. It was amazing. The love they had was so incredible and so rare, and so every one of a, every one of their kids thought, "Oh, I can find that," and yeah. then we think we find it, and then it's like it's the most disappointing, horrible thing ever. Yeah. And so, in a lot of ways, it's like, "Wow, you could have told us that what you had is you super guys won rare." The lottery, yeah. yeah, it's like you didn't tell us that. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite perk of your job? Uh, I have so many. I think part of what I love about our job is uh, getting to meet everybody. 
I, I mean, we have listeners from every walk of life and because we have so many listeners, we get, we just get exposed to a lot. You learned a lot about truckers. We learned a lot about truckers. I've learned a lot about transgender people. Um, I've learned, I've just, I've learned a lot about Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I re I'm really blessed with the people we have in our life because of the show. Like the most incredible friends that I have have come some way or another from the show. Um, my wife came through the show in a weird way. Um, the show has really given me a lot and I, I am not someone who takes that for granted. So after it got canceled, there's this idea of we can do this on our own. How yes. does that idea go from two people talking over drinks about what if and to like, let's, we can do it. Do you research first? What are the first things you do we, to make that a reality? Well, we, well, I had already started buying equipment. Like, Almost immediately, I started buying equipment because I kind of, I, I just wasn't sure. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to start buying equipment because I thought, very worst case scenario, if I have to do a show alone, I'm going to need equipment. Right. So I started buying stuff and started tinkering around with it before Derek and I had made the decision to, to do the show again the way we were. The hardest thing to figure out was how do we get it to the listeners? Like, what, what is the process of that? And that was a combination of finding a streaming content company and building the right kind of website uh, to make it deliverable and, and tying that all together with the subscription system. So that was the hardest part. But the thing about Derek and I, when we decide something, it's like, okay, put it into gear, we're going. Yeah. And there's no looking back. Like, once we made the decision, there was absolutely no looking back we were straightforward we're hidden there nothing's getting in our way we are going to get this done and i mean we we put together the new show in two and a half months like from not knowing how to do anything to having it launch in two and a half months which is lightning speed that's amazing. Yeah, and I the fact that we had so, so and the fact we had so few technology. I mean, like tech issues. We had a few of the first few days, but we resolved those so quickly. Like it's crazy. I love it. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, you worked at a coffee shop for a long time, Diedrich's Ninth and Downing, Denver, Whenever Colorado. Whenever I go to a coffee place and I watch them make the espresso, uh -huh. it looks so hard. It's not. It's not that hard. It's was not. it fun? But like cronk. Oh God, crunk. yeah, I loved it. Yeah, and I used to be so fast. Yeah, I bet. Because it's not like Starbucks where you just push a button now because yeah. everything's automated. Like this one, you used to have to grind the coffee, tamp it down, put it in, do it. Yeah, it was a process. But I love the smell of coffee. Oh, I do too. What, what If I went in there and you were working there, what drink would you make me? What drink would I make you? You, hmm, hmm. I think you're probably a latte person. That's true. That's and true. I'm going to say maybe a little vanilla yes, in there. Yes, that's so me. You nailed it. I'm good. Right. And you could make a good vanilla latte. <laughs> oh, I could make a killer vanilla latte. I love that. All right. Um, last question. Yes. What are your favorite moments when you're doing the show? What are my favorite moments? What are, the fa are they like when you're laughing so hard you can't stand it or when somebody tells you... Like what? When, um, do you, when do you kind of go? Oh my god, I love this. Tell, I'll tell you what it is. It's when you get an unexpected call. It doesn't happen all the time because they're very unexpected. But every once in a while, you will get a call that 
will completely change the direction of the show. Whether it's, you know, you're talking about something really serious and it takes you into a really crazy, funny direction. And occasionally you'll be talking about really funny stuff and you'll get a really serious question. My favorite call like this of all time is probably Trucker Bobby, who became infamous on our show. And he was this, you know, this over-the-road trucker from Tennessee, good old boy. And his son had just come out to him. And they'd done lots of, like, hunting and fishing and things like that. And he didn't know how his son coming out was going to impact their relationship. He didn't want their relationship to change because he really loved his son, but he was scared that it was going to. And he just wanted reassurance. And that became, that call was so moving on so many levels. A, that this guy who was such a stereotypical, like, tough, straight guy from Tennessee, like, would even have this sensitivity to call and ask this question. Right. Um, and be vulnerable enough and, to, to hear. Yeah. And um, so we had this beautiful call with him. I mean, I'll never forget it for as long as I live. And then, you know, he'd call back and he would give us updates on it. And, you know, and he, he has this amazing relationship with his son. And in turn, he had this amazing relationship with our audience. Because all of our audience are like, oh, my God, can he be my dad? Right. Um and he was just this shining example of what a, per, a, a parent's love should feel like. And, you know, and it was one of those just completely out of the blue, unexpected moments. And it's like, wow, what we're doing actually makes a difference for people's lives. And that is a really strong feeling. Like, it's a good, good feeling. I think that's awesome. Yeah. So tell people how they, if they're not already a fan or a listener of, of DNR 2.0, yeah. how they find this stuff. Super find easy. You go to DerekandRomaine.com, and we have a little section called Start Here, where you can go in, and it will give you all the information on how to subscribe to the show, how you can listen to the show. There's so many ways you can listen to the show. You can listen to it live through our online player on the website. You can add, we give you a special URL that you can put in your podcast app, so you can listen to it live on your podcast app, or you can download download it there you get access to our entire archive of dnr 2.0 that you can download at any point take the show with you it's awesome and and it's so much fun and are you on social media yeah of course i am so i'm on facebook uh romaine patterson there i'm on twitter romaine 33 there i'm on periscope i'm on all that stuff i love it all right one more final question have you ever said anything on the air you wish you hadn't said have I ever said anything on the air that I wish I hadn't said? No, I don't think so. That's why we love you. Yeah, I, I feel I I stand by everything I say on the air. I love it. All right, this has been so fun talking to you. <laughs> if you haven't read Romaine's book, pick it up. It is so beautifully written, and it, there's so many interesting things that I didn't know about you, well, and nice. also about the, the the Matthew Shepard story and some of the stuff behind the. Scenes that I yeah, there's a lot of information about that kind of stuff. In yeah, there. it's like, oh, I didn't know about that. Okay, it's a beautiful book. So, congrats Thanks. on that. This was fun. Love you, Thanks, Dennis. I love Bye. You Bye. Big thank you, Smooch, to Romaine Patterson for doing the podcast. Check her out at DerekandRomaine.com and listen to their show. Subscribe, embrace, love them, go on their cruises, hang out with them at Disneyland. It's a lot. They have a lot for you to do. All right, so this happened. I went to see Dolly Parton at the Hollywood Bowl. And she was everything you want her to be, full of stories. She talked more than I thought she would. And she played more instruments than I thought she would. She told lots of stories about growing up in the hills uh, and, like, her family, her gigantic family. And her parents were, like, 15 and 17 when they got married and they had 11 kids. Amazing. 
Um, and then she she sounded really amazing. Like, sometimes when artists get older, their voices, their range seems to shrink. She seemed to be at the top of her game. And I was, we were kind of far back, and the cameras didn't get too close for the screens. But to me, she seemed youthful. She didn't, uh, she's 71. I couldn't believe that. But uh, it was a great time. So I'm glad I got to see Dolly. My friend Scott took me for my birthday, uh, which was a real treat. And um, if she comes to your town, I heartily recommend catching the Dolly. So, um, there you go. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye!